And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. You're with uh, Crystal McCarrington, as my pen name would introduce. But as uh, here on the show, I'm Crystal Fleming. And uh, I have the just absolutely amazing honor today of bringing on somebody who's not only helping the Ukraine crisis, but her books have so much to offer us from all over the years. And I think it's, it's continuing to teach us. We will learn from this particular author um, for decades to come, and I can't wait to talk to her. But first, as you know, the routine, uh, we're going to have the advert from the Time Guardian book four, and also the advert for Rosemary Aitken's um, Roman British crime series. So bear with me. The battle is over, the war is won, the prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan. Struggling to cope with tragic loss, at odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping at shadows, and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Lathena's death, Giselle swears revenge, and vilified the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love. And that leaves her with an unbearable choice, should she follow her heart, or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave. As the guard and the order battle through the past and into the impossible future, darkness looks around every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe? Who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that the Peace of Freedom by Rosemary Rowey is... Um, having a portion of the do uh, the royalties donated to the Ukraine um, crisis and also her agent has donated her commission. So it's really important that you check it out and you do what you can to support. And we're, we are both very, very thankful for anything you guys can do. Now let's uh, introduce the woman herself, someone I've been so excited to have back on. Um, this will be our second uh, conversation. But I can't wait because it's always great to talk to her. I'm pleased to introduce you guys all to Rosemary Aitken. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, I just, I loved our conversation last time and I'm so excited that the, the listeners are going to hear it this time. Um, we had technical difficulties last time, but this time we're all, we're all started and ready to go. So. Um, I think like the first thing that I would like to sort of introduce these readers to is that you are somebody who's written a number of acad you know academic textbooks, and then you went on you wrote a lot of you know historical novels under your own name before doing a series of whodunits set in Roman Britain under your pen name Rosemary Rowry. I just I love the fact that your style is so real it's so touching that you can jump from doing an you know an academic textbook which is not an easy thing to write it's incredibly um difficult and then you know here you are writing these historical novels and then going in and doing crime to me it, it's just wow doesn't even cover it like i'm totally and utterly in awe of you um, and I noticed like one of your books had just come out well a few years back called The Blacksmith Girl and I, 
I find that one very interesting. So could you tell us a little bit about some of those books and the ones that you've been working on and ones that you have coming out? Yes, of course. Um, the Cornish stories uh, really sprang from my family's history. I don't write about my family's history, but my grandfather was one of the 31 miners who were killed in a big disaster in Cornwall called the Levant Mine Disaster. And he died leaving 11 motherless children. There had been more, but there were 11 of them still living because most children, you know, not all children tended to survive. And the mother had died in childbirth only a few months before. And my father was number 10 of those 11. He was 18 months old when his father died. And uh, he doesn't, of course, remember his, or didn't. He would be 106 or whatever it is now. But um, uh, I had been trying to write for Mills and Boone, like lots and lots of people. And um, I, I did finally sell the story, but I really felt when I went down they were closing the, uh, the the Giva mine and they were turning off the pumps. And yeah. I went down with my uncle who had worked down the mine and he was so moved. He was saying, you know, they're, they're killing her. This is, they're killing the mine. And he was so proud of having worked down the mine and what he'd done down the mine and the fact that it was the family history. I thought, this is what I want to be writing about. And um, he started telling me about, the way they'd lived, you know, when there wasn't any social support or anything, it was up to the course, kids yeah. kids to support each other. And my aunt gave up her own romance to bring up all these children. And of the eldest boys were, of course, earning. Two of them were down the mine with their father, but they'd walked up the ladders and their father went up the machine, which is what broke and killed everybody. Yeah, and my the uncle I went down with was actually there when his father's body was brought up oh, from the geez. mine. He was only six. And yeah, he went down to find where everybody that. was, and he saw his father's body being brought up from the mine. What a terrible thing to live with all your life. It and then must he went, have down, been, went yeah. down the mine himself. It's just incredible, really. Yeah. But it was it the must pride. have been a case of he felt no other option but to. Like it must have been a case that, you know, he looked at his brothers and his sisters who were struggling to eat and were struggling to survive. He must have felt a sense of, even at six, a sense of, I have to help i have to do something which is incredible yes that's true but he didn't go down the mine at six because one of the things my my aunt did was to ensure that as far as possible they got an education yes which is fantastic how my father ended up as a manufacturing chemist Uh, oh cool (laughs) because um yeah we won a gold medal for um wow for research work in in into uh, into uh, into into pharmaceuticals but um the young the youngest children got a better chance and this yeah, they did. but this little six-year-old looked after my father and when my father was dying he was calling for george so it's i, I really have yeah. a great attachment to this particular uncle um and i i think your 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 story is going to really resonate with a lot of people in britain because if you look at the devastation COVID's done recently, they'll understand that, you know, 
horror and almost that weight of having to watch a loved one die because a lot of them have watched it through screens they've watched it in person it's such a horrible thing to for anybody to have to go through never mind a child so I think what your you know your stories will really resonate with a lot of people that that are going through similar tough times but maybe not in the same way but but going through that tragedy Yes, and in, in the in the blacksmith's girl as well, uh, which has just been reissued as the Cornish blacksmith's girl, which was what it was originally entitled. Oh, um, uh, it's okay. uh, it the one of the things I was interested in was the very very strong Methodist background. Um, yeah, quite extreme Methodism, really, um, mm-hmm. which was very much a part of West Cornwall at the time. And it's not a real sect, the one that's in there, but uh, I think people don't realise how, what it can be. I mean, I was very much into religion when I was younger, and I have some idea of how constrictive that can be on your life. And um, so I I was interested in that. And also in one of the other threads in that story is the Cornish miners who fought in the First World War because they had the unlovely job of undermining the enemy trenches. And it was hush-hush. And they weren't allowed to wear the badges sometimes because if they were caught, they were in for it in a big way. Yeah, exactly. um, I think that's all the kind of hidden stuff. Everybody knows about the tin mines, but they don't necessarily know about that background, which was very much part of life. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm looking at, at, at your work here, and you've written 18 of these these Roman crime series, and it looks yes. as if you've just released one back on 31st of January. So tell me, like, what was it like to go from historical sort of you know historical novels to obviously doing a Romanian uh, a Roman crime series? Yeah, well, it's still historical novels, of course, which tells you where my interest lies, really. And um, Yeah, history. So yeah. My, it all started with a short story. My then agent rang up and said, have you got a short story? A short, I was writing short stories. I wrote a lot of short stories at one time for anthologies. Yeah. And she said, have you got an, uh, a crime story set in classical Rome or Greece? And I said, oh, yeah, I've got a mm-hmm. draw, hasn't everybody? And went and wrote one. And the guy yeah. who was doing the um, anthology said, oh, I like this character. It would make a series. So I tried yeah. to write a story and it took me so long. But by the time I'd done it, he wasn't publishing anymore. But um, Potter Headline took them on for a long time. And then uh, Sibbent House took them over eventually. And now it's Canongate, yeah. of course. So I've had a big change of publishers several times. But um, and how does that that feel like sort of lots of changes in publishers does that not like affect your writing does it does it affect your confidence or well um, it was lovely being with Hodder and it was lovely yeah. being with Seven House and I don't know what it's like being with Canongate because we've only just been taken over but it's it obviously gets bigger and bigger and um things yeah. things things change um but course, uh, every time yeah. I yes it it but Yes, um, but of course, Rosemary Rowe, which is Rosemary yes. Rowe rather than Rosemary Rowe, is my maiden name. That's the who I. I'm very apology with. if I if I butchered that. <laughs> I I was doing my best there, and I thought mm, I probably butchered it. 
don't have to know the way the Cornish pronounce their names. It's all right. Yeah, um, I'm Scottish, so, you know, it, it, it comes out wrong anyway, so. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> um, it's weird because um, when, you know, when I look at um, Shetland, Shetland had mines back in the day. In fact, um, in Cornwall, the Shetland pony came from Shetland. You know, you guys used the ponies back in the day. Um, and I look at the devastation of the mines that, that we had in Shetland. And in fact, they closed them down very, very quickly because they realized this was not going to work. Um, in fact, they started sort of trying to get lime, uh, I think it's limestone, sandstone, it is sandstone. Yeah. Um, and we started, you know, mining that and it was above ground. But I know so many of the families in Shetland who maybe had 20 to, to 18 kids each lost so many in those mining um, situations. And it became almost like a hate, you know, um, it was considered, you know, the poorest of the poor were the only people that the Shetlanders let um, go down the mines. And then, you know, it w- to fish was considered a sort of a more, mo- you know, what we would call a sort of, um, working class and then anybody that was had farms they were considered rich you know it was a very strange setup in Jetland and I love connecting with other people that want to keep the history alive I think like I feel like I almost like I'm keeping some of Shetland's history alive and I know Shetland writers out there are keeping Shetland's history alive but I feel like it's a it's a responsibility for all of us to keep our own villages and our own histories alive do you feel that too or do you feel like very much Yes, very much, although I've lived all over the world. They say that Cornishmen, probably like Shetlanders, are born with a piece of elastic and they always come home in the end. <laughs> that and, is actually very true. Yeah, Shetlanders, um, no matter yeah. where we go in the world, we always no. come back. It's, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I I've, I go back every so often and then I'm reminded of why I left. <laughs> um but for me, like, I would have stayed there in Shetland with my husband and had my family and raised my family. But I realized health, um, the health system in Shetland is so atrocious. It really, really is. Um, I've never known a worse health board than what, what Shetland has to offer. And I realized if I stayed in Shetland, I would I would die a lot younger than necessarily I would if I was on the mainland. Um, so we we had no other option but to to give up the dream of of living in Shetland and raising our family there and uh, move move back south. Um, and I know that there's a lot of Shetland families that's got kids with medical issues that are feeling the same way now. Um, in fact, I was thinking about writing a novel about a you know a young girl who's torn from the islands because she physically can't live there anymore due to her health, and writing a story about that just to maybe raise awareness in a way and kind of capture that little bit of history because Shetland used to be fantastic for health care and and now it's not so well you're, you're doing your bit to keep Shetland alive in your way too that's I think that's very important uh, one thing about about the tin mines of course was that um, for some people um, it was quite a skilled yeah. occupation because you had to know how to follow the scene, how to follow the scene. So the people who yes. were leaders of the pairs, like my pair, P-A-R-E, not P-A-I-R, the team, 
Not yeah. a bit of Cornish there, sorry. Um, like my grandfather. No, no, it's good. Keep it going. <laughs> were, were regarded themselves as being quite skilled. So there was a lot of pride in the job, um, yeah. which I, I think more than perhaps, I, I, I'm sure it was the same everywhere really, but they, they were very proud of what they were able to do. And the strange thing was that they often actually did a bit of fishing and a bit of farming as well, if they could. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, think that's... It wasn't, wasn't uncommon for a group of, probably the same in Shetland, a group of yeah. miners to own a boat between them. Nobody could afford yeah. a whole boat, but you could yeah. have a share in one, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's the, the great thing. All um, Shetlanders connect with people that have been involved with the ocean in some shape or fashion. Um, and, you know, we all, it's weird, we all abide by the maritime laws. Now, this is something not a lot of people know anything about, but lo- maritime laws is always stated that you help other people who are in trouble. You offer what food you can if they don't have anything. You offer whatever they need if you have what they don't have. And then in sort of like, it's like taking care of them. And then in in kind, if you end up stranded or you end up in a bad situation, you know somebody else in the ocean is going to look at you and help you in the same way. Um, And that's a, a kind of a tradition that if you're, you know, if you're a pure blood Shetlander, if you've got like, you know, the, the fishermen in your family they teach you this and they drum it into you like a, an old school drum but I think you can take it off the ocean and you can have it here on land like your community wherever you decide to settle should be the most important aspect of your life so that you're helping your community stay alive and thrive and if you have a healthy community you don't have a community that's full of crime and full of devastation because everybody will have what they need and nobody will be going without and nobody will feel desperate enough to have to commit a lot of the crimes that we're seeing today Uh, that's my thinking i I think i agree with you and but of course of cornwall also would regard itself very much as a maritime nation because you're not never very far from the sea in cornwall um there's a lot of crime though um, yeah, I know. Yeah, there's there's a lot of crime because there's a lot of unemployment. Yeah, and um, uh, uh, that that which was something that was never was never the case. I mean, there was yeah. there was it was hard work. It was terribly hard work, but it was work. Um, yes, of course. One of the terrible things that's happened is, of course, that the fishing industry and the mining industry have just collapsed, and all people do yeah, now is tourists. Um, which is a yeah. perfectly nice thing to do, but it's not. It doesn't have that depth of, you know, this is what my forefathers have done for generations, which was a yeah. thing before. Yeah, I yeah. think, and it's scary to me because I look at Shetland, and Shetland was not dealing with the same level of crime it is now, and I, it kind of breaks my heart because I'm thinking, fifteen years ago. Yes, we had drugs in Shetland and yes, we had alcoholism problems in Shetland, but we never had gangs coming up to Shetland to, you know, collect debts and we never had people getting their faces smashed in in their own homes because of road rage. None of that existed. I mean, two years ago was the last time, you know, was the first time in what, 50 years we had a murder. So, it is breaking my heart to see that Shetland 
is struggling in that way that, that this new crime of pedophilia seems to be a huge crime now in Shetland and it breaks my heart to think well where have we gone wrong that this is this is now something that's a part of our community and uh, I just hope that you know in a way Shetland will find its way out of this this mess and find its way back to what it was but you never know nowadays and and I think yeah it's sad and I feel like you know your area got left behind with the government um i don't believe in this whole you know they're going to upgrade us and we're all going to get an upgrade and we're all going to be made better i don't i don't think that there's enough money in britain to upgrade all communities that have had huge amount of losses and had huge amount of job losses i just don't think it's possible um and it's it's sad it really Neither do I think money is the answer to everything either. No, it's not. Having having jobs for people where they can work and they can feel like they've achieved something is far better than just handing them money and telling them, you know, you're okay or whatever. They need that that moment of realization that they've achieved something and that they can achieve something they can get ahead and they can have really good incomes and then obviously give their children a better opportunity than what they've had um and until the government focuses on that i don't think we'll see a drop in crime i think it'll get worse before it's going to get better i don't know one of the things it might teach us is to be grateful for what we have because i think that's one thing that we have absolutely lost yeah, I think we've absolutely become, forgotten that. Yeah. It's become a must-have society. I must have this, I must yes. have that because you've got it. And yeah, it wasn't exactly. like that for our great-grandparents. No, it was about survival. Mm. Yeah. And I think I think we've lost the love for the royals as well. I think that's taken a nosedive as well. And I think that's kind of sad because, I mean, the prince was booed. You know, he, he came to an event with his wife and and they've been through so much they really have William and Harry and not and to have the crowd boo him for being there for participating in the jubilee for the royals to be booed at all when we don't really have even a quarter of a clue of all the things that they do for this country and do for us that really made me feel sad that really did that made me feel like oh people do not understand what they're doing no, no. Yeah, no. It it was all over the news, and I just thought, wow, you know, that's that's such a sad thing. Such a such a. I I think awful the, response. I think social media has a lot to do with this. I think people are yeah a little bit too prone to just think you can say what you like, do what you like, and you're anonymous. And so you can threaten people and say horrible things to people, and uh, it's yeah, exactly because it's only yeah. social media. It's not all right. No, it's it's not. And it, when I worked with sort of all the young kids, my heart broke because they really b- believed that everything lived and died on social media, and I had to almost teach them that there was life outside of Twitter and Facebook. And it it did. It was like, I honestly thought to myself, we need to educate the kids that life is more than what's on the TV or what they can see on their screens or what 
of any of that. Do you know what I mean? It, it, we have to honestly go that one step further and say life does not revolve around your phone. If you follow my drift. No, it's, absolutely it doesn't. Because I'm old it, enough to remember when people didn't have even phones in their houses, let alone phones in their pockets. I know, exactly. I don't, I have a time where I remember I didn't have a mobile phone until I was 14 years old and I didn't know how to use it. I had it in my backpack and I had no idea how to use it. But when I figured out how to use it, I was bullied. I had to learn to have a tough skin. And, you know, it opens up the door to so many horrible things. And I I honestly wish that I had been older before I'd gotten a phone because nothing was going to happen to me on Shetland. There was no major crime at that time for me on the islands that I needed to necessarily be worried about. Um, and I think, yeah, I think if you live in an area that's safe enough, don't give your kid a phone. Um, let them grow up first. Let them develop as people before you introduce them to a world of social media and what, what social media means and how it takes over their lives. Yes. And, uh, I, but I must admit, yeah, sorry. getting back to your work. <laughs> I am excited to see um, that Dreadful Destiny is coming out in 29th of July. Uh, that will be... Uh, a Dreadful Destiny is out. Oh, is it? Oh, sorry. I've misread the yes, year. So you're right. It may be the e-book is coming out or something. Oh yeah, no no it, it, no I miss it was the paperback the paperback is out yeah yes it was the paperback version because the I keep forgetting nowadays you don't just release a book and it comes out in all formats I forget that nowadays it's like they release like the paperback the hardback first and then the paperback so usually a year later the paperback I've comes been out for twenty five years and I've never known it different they always brought the paperback out yeah. The hard unless backup. you're unless you're indie and then everything comes out on yeah, the same day <laughs> so i'm i'm still getting used to that british way you know they brought out the paperback and the people then the people who hadn't got the paperback that hadn't got the sorry they brought out the hardback and then yes. the people who hadn't bought the hardback might just get hold of the paperback yeah but well they, i think they, it's they, i think for some people the paperback is is less strain on us if that makes sense because particularly for people like me who have like really not the best muscles um a hardback if you're reading it for any length of time your arm slowly starts to go dead and you start to get like the tingling and the pins and needles in your hands and sometimes a paperback can be easier particularly if you're in hospital and they're you know they're taking blood and you've got lines in and stuff paperbacks are normally easier um but then there's times when i'm in hospital i prefer a hardback if i can't hold the book up to my nose so I can read it um you know I can I can turn the pages of a hardback and it's easier to hold it down so I can read it um but yeah I I always I always thought it was fascinating I wonder why it's an exact year that they wait before they release the paperback I always wondered that I don't know. Perhaps well, I hope people more people will be impatient enough to buy it I don't know but um of course I again, you see, I'm so old. I can remember when there wasn't such a thing as paperbacks. Everything was hardback, even if it was only yeah, cloth. That's you know? true. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, pa- paperbacks were kind of flimsy. And I suppose that's 
Oh, you know, you used to get the yeah. used to get the, the the cheap penguins. You know that was the that was the thing. And when I was young, it was all I could afford. So sometimes yeah. I like to buy a hardback because it's a it's a it's a book I really want to own forever. But most of, of the course, time, yeah. I buy a paperback <laughs> like anybody else. Of course, but yeah. No, no, I get that. Do you do you I, get on with Kindle? I I find I find ebooks quite difficult. I like the feel and the smell of a book. I do too. And I have really bad dyslexia and it's so weird because if I'm reading off a screen, the words will start moving yeah. and I get terrible eye strain and sore heads and I have to have a, a nap between reading sessions. So for me, I can't do it on a screen. I can't do it on a Kindle. So having a physical book in my hand that I can sniff and I can read and I'm turning the pages, it's very relaxing for me. But it's also easier for me to read. So I, I think I'll always be a physical book person rather than a, a, an e-book person, which is oh, funny because okay. I was an e-book author. So, yes, I hate doing edits because I strain my eyes so much doing edits because all edits is done on the computer. And uh, I kind of think I would have been a better writer in the day when, you know, they would send you the physical edits. I think I would have been better then because I wouldn't struggle so hard with the dyslexia. I, um, yes. I, I still have difficulty with uh, with editing online. I sometimes have to print it yeah. out. I don't see the mistakes if I'm copied. Yeah. Yep. I just don't see it on, on online. Used to be a teacher. I know that. No, no, no. Not no, I, I agree. I think it's so complicated now to edit because you've got track edits and you need to accept track edits and then you need to follow the edits I get so confused sometimes with editing but um, you know I get there in the end I just finished a book recently and I, I took me forever to, I think it was like three years it's been an editing now because I was struggling with the track edits and but it is edited now and and uh, I'm waiting to hear back from a couple of best-selling YA authors to see what they think of it before I send it on to any agents or any publishers because I just want it to be good. I want to be able to say to these people, hey, it's already been read by these big names. They say it's really good. Can we trust it? Can we go with it? Can we can we hopefully publish it? And it's the same because, I mean, I feel honored to get to know you and when I finish my period novel that I'm writing, the only person I'm going to trust with it, I've got two people that I that I am trusting to read it. Uh, maybe three, if she's still up for it. Um, and one of them, I hope, is you. Because I want to send it to you to almost have your opinion on it from a another historical writer's point of view. To read it and say, well, you really kept up the historical accuracy or even just to hear if it's a good enough story to pursue trying to find a publisher for it because I'm very much a freelance writer and I don't have an agent. I don't have anything set, you know? So I would love to see it. And and I am taking something personal for me. I'm, I'm doing the Shetland Bus Project, which is about all the fishing boats that used to go out and save people in the ocean and that would go to these countries and 
rescue refugees and bring them back and and find them safe places to live like in Canada or go to America or go into the mainland of Britain or st- even to stay in Shetland they would they would do all this great stuff for these people and sometimes they were deserters from the army the German army sometimes they were you know people from a plane that went down you know like they they had this great way of of making them feel safe and trusted and and like they could talk and the great thing about the bus project is they also used it to place the spies in german territory so they could get them across so maybe your you know your relatives met some of mine because they were running the bus project for for most of the first world war and i think they did it in in the second well they did do it in the second world war but i think they had something similar going in the first world war too um so you never know Maybe never maybe we, our families cross paths, yeah. Um, but I want to do that. And there was a royal bloodline, a royal, um, I don't know if they were distant cousins or what, what they were, but there was earls that took care of Shetland at that time. And I've used them as the catalyst for all these two stories that I was able to gather from elderly people before they passed and... I'm going to really put it through him and their family and have it so that whether it's a, a maid that works downstairs or the butler or from one of the girls' perspectives, all these stories that I've found is going to be connected into the family and connected into the Earl who actually ends up running the bus project and has a huge, you know, in historical fact, he did actually have a very big input into the bus mission so i've kind of used that so it's a bit like scottish downton abbey with with you know the action of the second world war um so that's the story i want to send to you when i finish it i'm you're on (laughs) i'm i'm nervous i'm i will be i met you i i am terrified um because i don't i don't know how this is going to go um, because I'm sort of wanting to balance the history and the romance, but also have the really nitty gritty reality of the war and reality that um, the upper class standards and way of life was really changed. It was changed forever. Um, and they never they never went back to what they had before. So I kind of I, I have a lot in the book. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's a project of mine. And. Funnily enough, I have dedicated it to Catherine Cookson and yourself uh, uh, for being pioneers in this industry um, and leading the way for a lot of other people like myself to continue on keeping the history of the world alive. Uh, She got me going and you've kept me going. So I think I couldn't think of anybody else that it could be better suited for. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Chris. Right. And uh, I just hope it doesn't suck. <laughs> That's my fear. I don't want you to turn around and say, oh, my God, this story is horrible. I shall tell you if it does. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I know it will. And that's what I love because I swear when Catherine was arrived, I could almost imagine Catherine Cookson phoning me up and going, Crystal, this is just terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible work. You need to start again. Like I could just imagine her doing that. So I kind of had her voice while I've been writing it the whole time, kind of instructing me almost <laughs> in what I should be doing. Um, but it's going to be interesting because I, I need to go through the editor to finish the edits. But it, yeah, it, I think it's going to be 
It'll make a great series. I just need to find the right place for it. And I think I think the readers will be very excited to read it. Um, and we've got sort of support from Nancy Revel. I don't know if you've read her work yet. Um, Nancy Revel is a Sunday Times bestselling author of the Shipyard Girls. So she wrote actually very true stuff about her family that worked in the shipyards during the Second World War. And um, so she's going to take a look at the book and maybe give me a quote for it. And then we've got Celia Reese, who did Miss Graham's World War. Miss Graham's. Miss Graham's cookbook. Sorry, I totally butchered that for some reason. Miss Graham's cookbook. And she. She's a, she made her career as a YA writer and now she's done an adult history uh, novel which came out in the pandemic. So um, I have a very big, big task to impress you all. <laughs> so I just hope it works. Um, but yeah, my idea was to create a very glamorous, but yet a very kind of tragic setting and, and have people admire it, but at the same time realise what we gave up and what we sacrificed and and i feel like it's maybe coming out at the wrong time with ukraine and everything but yeah i think it's it's good to remind people that we're really strong as a as a country and we can survive anything yeah let's hope let's hope the ukraine does it's not looking good it's not looking good no but i if i know them uh and i know how much influence Ireland had on them they will be perfectly fine with their uh, their warfare so yeah yeah. so on to um, the show itself what is the book that you've read recently that stuck with you the most uh, I have been reading a book called uh, A History of Rome in Seven Sackings which is a very odd thing oh. to have been very, very interested in, but it, it is, is a bit, yeah. Uh, it is. It's, uh, but it's it's history and it's Rome, and of course that's interesting to me. But also, I was. It's just written by a man who knows a lot about Rome. He lives there, and it's oh, it's okay. uh, it's it 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 really gets the nitty gritty feeling of what it must have been like to be actually in Rome. And I found a book about Pompeii, which I yeah. Have only just started, and it's uh, it, it is actually about about what they now know about the inhabitants of Pompeii, and oh, oh really? I wish I'd read that ages ago. It's so lively. It what interests me is what brings history alive, and exactly, they, yeah, really, really do 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 it for me. The the, uh, the 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 history of Rome in seven sackings is a little bit um a little a little bit niche. But it's um, yeah, yeah. But it, it it is of interest to me, uh, particularly the, the the early part of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. W- wouldn't it help you with the writing of your own stuff because it's giving well, you yes. a, a much more uh, detailed course, insight? Of of those seven sackings, only six of them, uh, six of them happened after the period I'm writing about. So. <laughs> ah, okay, yeah, that that would not necessarily be that helpful then, would it? No, if no, you no. think got it, it, no. It's very interesting for putting together what happens to Rome. Yeah, of course. That yeah, no, but I think I, I just had that instant thought that must be really helpful, and then I'm like, oh wait, maybe not, because <laughs> I've had I've had books where I've picked up and I thought this will be really helpful for my my writing, and then I'm like, shoot, no, it's not. Uh, 
ooh, what do I do now? Yeah. Writing about I've, I've had those moments. 200 and something AD, you know, 200 odd AD. An awful lot of history happened after that. So <laughs> Yeah, of course, yeah. But I, I had that instant moment of, yeah, that must have been really good. And I thought, mm, maybe not. <laughs> so who, if you could pick one author and one series to read and you don't have to worry about time or inter you know interruptions or anything like that who would you pick and why that's an interesting question um it would depend on my mood i think my my first instinct would always be to say dickens because dickens is just so different and there's so much of it and he has oh, just okay. full of so many interesting characters and you can read him aloud or put him aside or whatever but um, I think I mentioned to you before, one of the people I would, if I was on a desert island, I would love to take with me is somebody else who writes just about life. And that's Lillian Beckwith, who's yeah, and that's mentioned the Highlands. Her, yeah. I just loved her books. They're so human. Yeah. And, and that's um, a great thing. I couldn't, I wouldn't go anywhere without Jane either. So, um yes I don't blame you for that I don't blame you for that so what's your feelings on Charlotte Bronte and and those Um, books are you into Charlotte I think yes well I of all of them really um I think Anne is Mm -hmm. rather undervalued um yeah I think I think Emily got on to a technical thing which is absolutely extraordinary because she tells the story of Catherine and Heathcliff but she tells it through the distorting mirror of Nellie, who is telling it to Lockwood. And by and Lockwood yeah. is telling us, so we're three steps removed. And, of course, she isn't really. And then she puts that all back. So we know that yes. perhaps her testimony about Heathcliff is a bit biased. And then suddenly mm-hmm. we are confronted by the fact that all this is not happening in front of us, but it's three stages away. And that's terribly clever. I think she just hit have on you, it by accident, but it's brilliant. Have you read Mary Brunton? Uh, she wrote the book Self-Control. She was a Scottish novelist published in 1818. And uh, she was one of the inspirations for Jane Austen and, and how Jane Austen planned her novels. She yes. also wrote Discipline and Emmeline. She was she was considering her background and the fact she was a pastor's wife and and uh, was dyslexic too. I just find it very interesting that she plays such a huge role in in Jane's writing too. Yeah, no, I I, I have heard of her before. <laughs> Thanks yes, you. you heard of it from me. Yep, <laughs> but I have. I, I will be passing you her name along um, yes, at the end. I, I, and it's on my to-do list, but I, I must admit, I haven't. I haven't found her yet. No, no. She's very difficult to read. I found her very, very difficult to read um, because she has moments of such detailed description, so detailed. It, it it's almost like four pages worth of detail. And then she goes back into the action. But you almost forget through reading the description where you are in the story. Yeah. But I can see the sarcasm and the the wit that Jane was able to find in herself and bring it out. Because I can see a lot of the techniques Jane did in her work 
actually was in Mary's book first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought, wow, you know, it was like having, it was almost like reading another Jane, but with a lot more description in it. Yeah. And that's the only way to describe it. So I will, yeah, I, I recommend everyone check her out, if, especially if you're a Jane Austen fan, because yeah. she's totally forgotten. Nobody nobody knows anything about her unless no, you're Scottish I, I, and, you know, I, you're, I, I, you're I, studying I mean, her. I even studied Jane at university. I'd never heard of it. But, of course, no. things were very different back in the 50s. <laughs> yes. And, it, I mean, you can actually um, do yeah, an updated Jane Austen. weren't necessarily looking for those things at all. Um, but the yeah. uh, the um, one of the things about Jane, of course, which makes Jane so delightful, is that she does yeah. have this instinct for timing. She doesn't oh gosh, hold yes. you up with description. No. I mean, take Thackeray, and he can slow you down for yeah. half a chapter while he tells you about something yes. you didn't need to know. But um, yeah, it just was in a in a in an era where people didn't have pictures to look at much. They weren't used to television. They had to be told how to construct a picture. Exactly. And I think that the creation of film and photographs has completely changed the way people have to do descriptions. Yeah. And I think, I think Jane almost learned from Mary in a way. I think that was something that maybe um, we didn't realize is that she actually did probably learn from that book and said okay the description's too heavy I don't want to have my story sort of take this long so I'm going to maybe limit my description so I think it I think maybe that was a good learning curve for Jane um what she was doing Jane is very good at not taking you outside the I mean story taking you outside the main character's head very much. So she she doesn't spend a lot of time describing what Emma's wearing. Exactly, yeah. Or even what Emma looks like much. Mm -hmm. But you know because Emma looks like you because you are Emma. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You don't don't need to worry about what colour is her skin or what colour her hair is or because you are that character for the duration of the novel and I think that's that's an incredible feeling yeah. and, and, thing and to I mean, be. so much so that when I when I sometimes see a film of I saw a film yes. of Emma and I thought but Emma's blonde no she's not yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's everyone's own interpretation yeah and I, I that's the great thing about reading is everyone has their own viewpoint on on, on books and yeah, what you've written you know and, who said that she read the book and then she Heard this, heard a story on TED, on, on radio, and um, yeah. she was losing, she was losing her sight, and they were saying, "Well, you'll be able to listen to the radio." She said, "Yeah, but the pictures aren't so good." Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, is there an author, past and present, who has influenced, inspired, and made you a excited about reading and books, and then who's made you excited and felt influenced to write? Oops. Don't know. It's a very tough question, I think. It is a tough question. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose... I, I think one of the strange things is that one of the things that really made me believe that it was possible to, to write was when I was a child in school, 
an author yeah. who in, in New Zealand, a, an author who nobody had ever heard, has ever heard of before or since, came to talk to the called Anton Vought. People may prove me wrong, mm-hmm. but I don't think anybody's ever heard of him in this country. Came to talk to yeah. us. And the idea that this real person had produced this real book suddenly made the idea that one could write very, very living. And I think the decision that I could actually write something, and maybe when I grew up I might be able to actually write something that somebody would publish, probably sprang from actually meeting Mm -hmm. an author. Um, I agree, yeah. And I really, really think that author visits to schools and what goes on in schools is vital to the idea if we're going to have generations of people going on storytelling. Yeah, of course. And I think it's it's a good way to keep um, techniques alive as well. Mm. And that's, I, I get the feeling that that's being lost. And there's nothing we can do about it but it you know it is being lost a lot of our our skills and our techniques are being lost and I wish that they would you know I would love to go in I have a a young adult that I spent years putting together and I would have I would love that opportunity to go into a school and educate them about what it means to 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 write the book what it means to put it together what it means to it's not just the book you've then got to go on and you've got to market the book and you've got to know how to get word of mouth out and they do teach a lot of that marketing stuff now to the kids but um gosh I wish they'd done it when I was a kid but I'm learning I learned a little bit from being a learning support teacher that yes some of it's there but not all of it's there and I think I would I would like to be able to go in and educate them on things that they don't know and that could maybe make it easier for them to to know if that makes sense what he really had to say which inspired me was yeah you know I can remember sitting in a school desk like you and writing stories and thinking I would like to get them published I was a person just like you. If you like writing stories, you might be able to get them published too. He actually said this. Mm -hmm. And that was what made me think, this is not like being a magician or being an acrobat. This is something that, you know, people like me could actually do. And of course. It's funny how it stayed with me all these years. But I've always loved the, the things that I look back on and think, oh, that was lovely. I like people's writings like I, I like memoirs that are written from the point of view of, with a kind of humanity yes I, I like, humbleness uh, as well Bert, yeah Bert Bogards and um Joyce Grenfell and mm-hmm. people like that uh, I read well Joyce Grenfell particularly when I was quite young and I thought this is magic yeah. look they've taken me out of my world and they put me into their world and although yeah. I always loved stories for stories and I used to consume great Mm -hmm. quantities of Agatha Christie and all sorts of people it was that that always made Mm -hmm. me feel this is this is magic and this is what it's meant to be yeah I didn't really read romance I came to Catherine Cookson Hmm. quite late and um, I think there was a sort of snobbism about and I was astonished at the humanity that goes into those stories as well it's the same thing it's people taking you out of your world and putting you into 
theirs, only hers was an infectional one. And um, mm -hmm. Joyce Grenfell, for example, was putting you in a, a one that was a remembered one. But it's exactly the yeah. same, Lillian Beckwith, the same thing. It's exactly that humanity. I yes, want you to exactly. feel what it was likely to be there. And these are people whom I loved. And that feeling exactly. of love mm -hmm. is what I have always, the warmth has been always what really, really attracted me to that kind of writing. And what I, I like about sort of Catherine is that her stories were things that she'd seen, things that she'd experienced, things that she'd witnessed. And that was incredibly important because it changed I, for me it changed the outlook on writing it made me feel like you know we didn't have to romanticize things and yeah I mean if I hadn't read her I don't think I'd ever be a writer in fact I think one well, of my stories would be something I'd only tell my kids or my nieces and my nephews I wouldn't necessarily you know be writing them and I think that's tragic almost yeah, it's so genres I mean, yeah I, I bet but she does, She also, she writes about things that she's witnessed, but she also sometimes yes. sets periods that she can't have witnessed. But, no, she makes no, but she's peeled those stories from someone, yeah. Did. yeah. And that's the important thing. Yeah. She makes you go there with her. Yeah. And she did talk to so many oh, of yes. her elders. Yeah. Oh. And she interviewed so many. And I think that was important because if she was going to write a time period, she knew everything that there was to know about that time period so that she couldn't make the mistakes that would throw you out of the story and ruin it for you and that's a technique that I kind of drum into anybody that asks me for advice I'm like no 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 your your genre and no 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 what you're writing about and know everything that would happen in that period if you're doing a drama so we do not lose the magic of what you create um it, it, most people think know, I'm crazy for drumming that in I don't know how true that is um mm -hmm. uh, I used to go to lots of uh, writers' conferences and things. I used to be president of the West Country Writers' Once Upon a Time. And um, yeah. the, um, uh, I remember somebody telling me, it, it's not the, uh, one of the most clever things I ever heard, it's not what you don't know that catches you. It's what yes. you think you know. Yeah, exactly. What you assume exactly. that you know. And that's where you can make the mistakes. Like, um, I, I always yeah. remember... Um, P.G. James actually saying in one of her novels, she had a motorbike go backwards. <laughs> and didn't okay. occur to me couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is some that can, but yeah, yeah. But there's one that will. I think it's a Harley Davidson. And she had to yeah. change it so that it, she actually nominated that it was this kind of motorbike because somebody picked it up that you couldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, and then it had to, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it starts the kind of cry craze and of wanting to prove everything wrong. About uh, uh, writing about a, a farm where they were going to spend all their money to buy a bullock or something. I think I've got yeah. that right. And a bullock is actually castrated, and it was that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted bull. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, but it, there could have been some humor to that if you think about it. If, if yeah, she'd gone, it, but it, 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 yeah, it, yeah. If you're, if you're if you don't know and you're and your editor doesn't know. Yes, exactly. Somebody's going to read that and think, you what? Yep, somebody's fucked up. Yep, yep. 
So I go, go, I've been pulled up for things I mean, like that too. About being writing about Roman Britain is that nobody knows. So that's all right. No, <laughs> you get away with a lot more. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And if you find so a pool we, of blood, you don't. You nobody will know whether it's a person or a rabbit. It's exactly it, there's no way of knowing. Um, no, and, and they had no way of knowing. And telling exactly. a first-person narration, nobody can know what the what my narrator doesn't know. So that's exactly. very helpful for crime. But um, and it lets you get away with a lot too, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, because if you're if you're telling the story from a, a remote point of view. You know, the author knows everything or can do. Exactly, yeah. You're writing through his eyes. You can only know what he knows. Yeah, which is, is problematic at times, yeah. Yeah, so but it's when... wonderful. Uh, there's a, I'll, I'll tell you this. It's a stupid story and you can shut me up. But um, no, no, I have a go wonderful, ahead. wonderful way of cre- creating a murder in Roman Britain because Ooh. they used to keep, sugar crystals they used to keep sugar crystals and put them when they they weren't proper sugar they 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 were actually made of mercury and they would they would Um, let it they they would put wine into a a, a mixture and it would make little crystals and they were sweet yes and you put them on they could put them on things and eat them and they were poisonous so if you ate too many yep you die yep trouble is you can't use it because they didn't know that True, true, true. Yeah. So we have a wonderful method of committing murder that you can't possibly use because they didn't know. They yeah. didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and how would you, you know, how would you prove it was murder as well? You know, that that's that's the hard part. Yeah. It could only be accidental death, which isn't very interesting, really. <laughs> no, it's not. But uh, you you could almost have that as a twist in some some sort yeah. of way because you could be say, quite, "Oh, this person was murdered," and then like a Roman reenactment and have somebody do it that way. Yeah, <laughs> but you could have that. it almost like a, a, a you know they suspect murder, they suspect murder, they suspect murder, and then somebody's witnessed that you know they've been sitting eating these sweet things and. And uh, then suddenly died, and then you know you could make that as a, a very good twist in one of your your novels yeah, because it wouldn't be expected. Know what killed them? So you know, no forensic science. If you died, you died. They might exactly. spot you were poisoned, but they would never have guessed it was that. <laughs> exactly. So when you go to a bookstore, um, what where would you say you're drawn to first and foremost? Where's your number one place to to look at books? I know that you're. You're more at home. So if you were to order a book online, um, what genre do you look at first? Do you browse or do you just go on and order what you're looking for? Uh, depends. Um, I often I spend yeah. quite a lot of time looking at catalogues. Ah, okay. And um, I, I tend to, my first draw is always to nonfiction. But yes. Um, Sometimes I will see a review of something and think I'd like to read that, you know. But if yeah, I go reviews into a second, can be helpful. I go into a second-hand bookshop, I look at um, crime. Okay. <laughs> Always. Obviously. Uh, yep. uh, yeah, not necessarily, though. I don't like noir crime. I, I don't like horrors. No, so I, no. I'm Some of it golden, is a bit rough, I'm yeah. Golden Age or cosy or intellectual crime, really. Yeah, cozy's um, good and safe. Yeah, yeah. Well, ish. ish. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not exactly cozy, but um, uh, I don't like 
violence for the sake of violence. And exactly, it's crazy when yeah. I write when I write crime stories with murders in them. But actually, I'm not really interested in the murder. I'm interested in the motivation and the people and the way of life behind it. So that's really where, where I'm at. It's um, just it's just a really historical book, but with kind of a murder backdrop is a, you know a good way of putting it. Uh, the road, yeah. the, the uh, in a sort of sense, I want to do to try and do what we were talking about before. I want to take you back there and say, what would it actually have been like? And actually, they're not yeah. that different from us as people. They're not as different from us. And people say to me, "But oh, what about gladiators?" And I say, "When did you last watch a war movie where everybody got shot?" Exactly. I I would love to see you sort of dive into kind of like go into the English history a little bit before all this sort of industrial boom and Victorianism and stuff like that. I think that would be interesting to have you kind of go back into that time and sort of introduce us into the English world at that time, whether it's through sort of a middle you know, middle class family or, you know, a family that's that's struggling to stay in the upper epsilons. I think that would be because somebody like you could really write that incredibly well. And I think something like that would do really well because it's almost like a fresh take on history because nobody's writing in that area and nobody's writing in that year either. Excellent crime. Yeah, she based, could. Based in medieval medieval England and of course you've yeah. got people like you know book, books like this now here's something that would draw me straight away first thing I saw it was the other Berlin girl oh yeah. yeah 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 which I know is, the one which is not quite history but mm-hmm. it's based on historical fact but it's bringing that whole era to life now that sort of thing yes. I really really enjoy yeah it's good because it, it gets it gets your juices flowing. When I was young, I used to read, read a lot of Georgette Hare. Yeah, I remember you saying, yeah. So that yeah. That, that is definitely interesting. Has there yeah. ever been a book you've picked up and you thought, why did I start this? This is not my cup of tea. This is this is this is disaster. Yes, I was given a school prize once for writing. Would you believe? Um, oh, called okay. Lendro by Burrow. And I never have succeeded in finishing that book. Oh, I just thought it was boring past belief. I might have been oh. far too young for it, but it, it, I just, I, I just, I just look at it like I feel my, I feel the weight on my shoulders. It's just like good one, plowing, good one to kill insomnia then. Pardon? Yeah, good one it's, to kill your insomnia with. <laughs> no, <laughs> it wouldn't even do that. Oh no! Reading it long enough—it's just tedious. Um, oh, and I that's never that. good to have a book like that. Is it, it, no? I mean, I've been there. I've been there with you, and I—I I would have to say, I would—I would throw it out the window and just forget it ever existed. Um, and and I—I'm a great believer in not doing that. that so. About a, about a very violent noir crime novel. I think I read it, and then somebody's being dissected in a horrible way in front of you i mean i have people who have come to horrible ends but not usually in front of you and i mean it's just gratuitous violence and often sexual violence and i think i am not going to read this i wish i'd never touched it and people give me crime books because i think i'll like them and sometimes i really don't Mm. just say (laughs) give me a historical you'll be fine just i think that's the new new thing they ask you what you want for christmas say 
historical. So we're <laughs> going into the writing portion of the podcast. Um, and I have to sort of, we're diving into sort of the darker side of your writing. And how did you go about creating those darker characters that kind of created that threat to, in your stories that cr- did the murders that create that darkness and that dark period for your characters I'm afraid like all authors I think I just looked in my mm-hmm. head I think we all have the capacity to be quite evil if we wish to yeah be. I think we Imagine do it, and oh. it, it's, it's funny because you, you say that and there's um I was listening to the the crime. There's a podcast called the Crime uh, Daily Daily Podcast, and uh, there was actually an author who is up on charges for writing a story on how to kill her husband, and then her husband suddenly died. He was suddenly murdered, and I thought, hmm, is that not a little bit bit suspicious? Well, there are, of course, and I'm not going to name any names, but um, anybody who knows the field will probably know who I'm talking about. There are quite yeah. famous authors who are, in fact, murderers. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they re- no, I, I mean writers of crime. Yeah, not of fiction, course, yeah. No, I mean, fictional crime who are, in fact, authors, who are, in fact, murderers. So, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I think we all of us have the capacity to be, to think what would happen if if mm-hmm. I, you know. It's letting our subconsciousness out. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. For me, I actually have to go and set a mood. I have to have specific music and lighting and I have to just really kind of dig in and then and then just let it go, let my mind go. Um, but if I don't, I mean, I'm not able to do that. I find it a bit more difficult to write that um, stuff and, and to get into that kind of frame of mind. So what inspired you to enter into the historical and kind of lend your writing voice to that above all other types of, of writing? Because you could go into any genre and you would have been fantastic. So what was it about history more than anything that that made you well, want I, to I, add your I, voice I, to them? I think I said before, I think my... The, Listening to my uncle talk about his childhood made me think, I want to catch yeah. this before it's gone. And then my my yeah. agent rang up and asked me if I had a, a, a crime short story set in, <laughs> set in Rome. So I wrote one and I thought, oh, this is interesting. So <laughs> It's very gratuitous, yes. Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I like that. I do like that. Um, I wish I had a, an agent that did that for me, to be honest. Yeah, so that's my dream of mine, to have a decent ed- uh, agent that can uh, can almost give me a direction sometimes for my writing because I, I can sometimes one day be working on a crime book, another day in historical, and I just never know what I'm waking up to to write. Um, so, yeah, it would be lovely to have somebody that would put me in a, in a good direction. What uh, is there a... Like when you go to create your books and you you write your books, is it a movie in your head or is it a jigsaw puzzle that you're kind of putting together, that you're slotting the pieces together? I'm not a planner. Okay. Oh, you're a pantser. That's what it's, yeah. I have a general idea what this is about. You know, I, yeah. my, 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 my young lady who, who's in the, um, the Cornish blacksmith's daughter, um, I have an idea what's going to 
where she's going to end up, and it's I imagine it's quite clear to everybody where where the romance lies, whether it's going to happen yes. or not. In at least one of my books, it didn't work. Um, but, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks to the war, but um, uh, and uh, the back character in that one, uh, Ellie is uh, Effie is um, you know is is already living with the effects of war, but. Um, Sorry, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> it's Ask okay. No, it's fine. Um, so when you're putting your, your story together, is it like a movie or is it a jigsaw puzzle in your yeah, head? No, no I'm, I, I'm not a planner. I have a general idea where it's going and what the main theme is. And then I yes. turn on the television in my head and see what happens. Um, but I don't. Ah. I, I, <laughs> and it's very much episodic. Right, yes. Um, particularly in the romances, because it's not a one-person narrative. It's viewed from diff- different people, because I don't think you ever understand how the, sometimes how the less attractive characters think, unless you see inside their heads, you know, unless you see the world yes, through their, their eyes. So, um, yeah. so I sort of turn it off and then have another television episode from a different, slightly different point of view. And that's really good, I think, because it gives you that sort of wider perspective and that broader perspective, which I quite like. Is there a character that stayed with you the most or the longest that you've written? Well, obviously, the um, detective hero of the of the um, de- the crime series is well. He's yeah. not a detective at all. He's a, a pavement maker, but um, yeah, uh, solves all uh, the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, he sees patterns. I think that was the, I think that was the idea. Oh. And also because he is who he is, he's a tradesman. He's an ex-slave. He has entrance yes. into the high places because he makes pavements for the wealthy. Yes. He's 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 a Celt, but he's a Roman citizen, oh. and he has a wealthy yeah. patron. So he got he can go anywhere and he can talk to anybody because he has links with everything and not many. Yes. Not many professions would have, so that was a that was a happy accident. Um, but obviously, he's there, and his his family run through everything, and his uh, and his patron yes. and things like that. But um, the in the Cornish ones, there's a there's a hidden secret which I'll let, let you into. There is a character called Crowdy, who uh-huh. is in every single book, and oh. he's a farmer, and he is just the backbone of everything. And he just drives uh-huh. a car, and he sells. He sells. He takes. He t- takes somebody to market, or he gives somebody a lift, or he sells somebody milk, or somebody goes to his house and talks to him. You know, and he's there. Yeah. He's in every single book. He's very background. Nobody. He's never, never in the foreground. He's just there. And he's yes, just there he as a support. Me, yeah, he's with me, with me the longest. And if I'm thinking of a Cornish book, it has to be somebody Crowdy knows. Yes, because otherwise it doesn't feel feel otherwise, right. Otherwise, not part of the story. No. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Uh, I have characters like that all the time, and it drives me spare because they have nothing to do with the series, but they want to pull me back to their own. Is there a character that you wish you could have written more about? Would Crawley be that person? No, really, I think I'm Crowdy. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, except he's a man, of course, and a farmer. 
But I think yeah, really, yeah. you know, it's it's his world I'm creating around me. Uh, so he's so not. You don't he's, think he's, he... irritation. he's he's a he's um. Yeah. Uh, one person I would quite have liked to have developed a bit more and never got much of a chance was somebody who turned up in my first book, who's really a version of my Aunt Neat. Um, oh, okay. Uh, and, and she's the lady who um, has has to look after the orphans um, yes. and who is as hard as nails, but only because yeah. life has made she her that way. She Yeah. Heart of gold, be, yeah. adores the baby, but uh, it's tough as old boots. And it's yes. a very Queenish thing, and I'm sure there are people just like that in Shetland. Yes, very much so. We had a few uh, battle axes, definitely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We that's, actually that's called that. them that. Yeah. Built on solid gold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a lot um, of battle axes whose hearts were just a gold, and and would take in orphan children, yeah. or yeah. you know, but there was yeah, not, so many. not terribly attractive. But no. would, but actually, in the book, she actually risks her life. Yeah, because she I, I, she she loves the child. Yeah. Yes, mm. I think that's great. I think I would agree. Yeah, I would love to to hear more about her as uh, as the future goes on. Never know. Maybe your 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 publisher phone after hearing this and say, "Yeah, let's let's um let's let's do a story about her." I think. I think maybe you never you never know you might get a call about that. We do have a slight problem because um, regional sagas are out of favour. They're not easy yes. to sell. I'm sorry to tell you this because I know you're writing one or a version of it. <laughs> but regional stuff is not very popular at the moment. Um, no. But uh, hang about, it'll come back. It always does. It always does. And and I kind of I keep that in the back of my head that I you know. It might not come out and be popular now, but it, it, in five years, it could change a writer's life, or it could mean something to somebody. And yeah. I don't do this to get rich. I do this just to tell stories, and so that people can have the love of a story, and and have a story that might take them away from their own pain and their own um, hardships yeah. and things like that. So, what techniques have you found helpful, and the ones that you wish you hadn't tried during your writing career so far? What? Which? Sorry, which? Techniques, did you say? Techniques, writing techniques, yes. Um, um, Well, I used to be an an English language teacher, and um, I used to train teachers of English to foreign language. And um, I think a feeling for the rhythm of English, the way English actually puts itself together, has been very helpful to me. that's good. uh, one of the things is I, pe- different people speak differently. And one of the problems yes. about one of the problems, I mean, I, I used to do a bit of acting as well. And you so can't. So did I? Have, yeah. Like, yeah. I think that helps enormously because you've got to get into somebody's voice and you read an awful lot of, I mean, if, if you read other people's manuscripts when they're trying to get published, you a lot of people, everybody sounds like the author. Yes. And you can't hear the you can't hear the different rhythms and the different voice and the different choice of words that um, people yeah. naturally make 
when when they're just different because some people are more influenced by what they what they see and other people are into sounds you know and if you just do that mm-hmm. you have somebody who says you know yes i see and somebody else says yes i hear what you're saying you've immediately got different kinds of people and it if you yes. keep that in your head you can keep the balls in the air um, what doesn't work for me ever is what we were talking about before being the eye of god and seeing everybody i can't mm-hmm. do it I can only be one person at a time. I know and that feeling, and I can I can only be one as well. Yeah, I'm just different. Sorry, I I know exactly how that feels, and and I cannot change it. I can't be anybody that's different. I struggle so much with leaving one person's head. Like I'm, I've just learned how to do the Mills and Boone technique. And it is so difficult because you're head hopping and I've never head hopped before. And it's such an odd writing style for me. It almost feels completely alien and strange. And not much like um, reading either. <laughs> no, I, I, I find it difficult. And I, I, there's so many authors that do it and I love them and I love their books. But sometimes, yeah, I find that very, very difficult. I've got Shirley Canning coming on, who's um, a best-selling adult fantasy author from America. And it's the same thing. Like, I'm just so narrow. Like, I I love how she does it, but I can't copy that style. Um, And I'm trying at the moment for obviously because I've been given a chance. But there are some things that suit your... If you tend to be... If you tend to work from inside then that's mm-hmm. what you have to do. If you can work, for, if you're going to work yes. from out, I mean, probably these people are also planners. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a plotter too. So, yeah, I have to plot. I have yeah. to plot so, or I lose I mean, it. I'm but this is. And I sometimes try to make my characters do something and they say, you what? No. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. So but you, they, you I, I admit this, this book I'm doing here called Ride With Me for Mills and Boone is a pantser because I had plotted the book and I had detailed the book down really well. And my husband laid away a notebook because we were moving house and he somehow lost it. And I can't find it and neither can he. So I lost the entire book. And now I'm kind of almost pantsing it because I cannot remember all of it. So I'm just sort of going with the characters and going with the story and praying that when I get to the end, that um, it's it's what it's what I set out to write, and it's not completely and utterly different. Um, but I have constantly the in my mind, I have constantly the outline of and the rules of Mills and Boone there, guiding me and sort of keeping me entrapped within their within their limits. I hope that the story's great and it's wonderful. Um, and it's uplifting and it's romantic and it's everything they want. But at the same time, I'm, I just want to see how it turns out now because it, it is my first pantser in over 15 years, 15, 16 years since I started writing a uh, plot style. So I, um, yeah, I'm very nervous, very, 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 very nervous to see how it turns out. I, 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 I'm, People say to me, oh, you, you must have a plan. And in a sense, I do, but I can't yeah, think. Even if, if, 
I mean, I have an idea. Obviously, when somebody dies, I have an idea who killed them and why. Yeah, yeah, you but, have an outline um, in your head, yeah. But how you get from finding the corpse to finding that out, that's just, mm -hmm. um, I just have to watch what Libotus does and how he travels about and falls over things and he doesn't necessarily yeah, exactly. work it out. It's just because that's not the nature of society. He doesn't have yes, I would doesn't have uh, data at his fingertips. He just has to deal with what he can come across mm. and the patterns he sees. Yeah, of course, mm. I get that. I get that very well. Mm. So moving it to your life, okay. This is the part that everyone wants to know because they they, they want to know what we're like behind the scenes. Because we almost have a, a front that we present to our readers, and that is the the writer image, um, and it's the image that publishers have created over years and years and years. So we're going to really to sort of in, explore that and explore who we are in this this next segment. So, what's the first thing you do when you need to just walk away and de-stress from writing and editing and your life? What's your your go to to absolutely just go and just fully relax i'm going to sound terrible but it's the other way around writing is my i know writing. i knew you were going to say that because i remembered that from last time and i'm like i know it's such a, a weird question for you but writing is your escape is it not writing. it's like it's like the best ticket for you yes it's, it is um i i'm not amazingly well like yourself really and my yeah. husband is very far from well. And I have a lot of quite difficult jobs to do and things to see to yes. and worries. And I can yeah. just escape. I just come in and for an hour I'm doing something else. I'm somewhere else. Yeah, you've taken a ticket and you've gone to explore a new world. Mm. Yeah, I like that too. And for me, writing is my escape when I'm stuck in the hospital. And this is what drives doctors mad because they don't believe I'm sick if they see me writing. Hmm. But for me, it's if I'm scared or if I'm dealing with something that is too much for me to be able to write and be a different character for an hour or two hours or however long they leave me alone for, that's golden. Hmm. And I suffer terrible PTSD. And it's it's almost like I can step away from the PTSD and it can't touch me anymore. It can't torture me anymore. And I can be in that other person's head just for a little while and just be safe from all that drama and trauma that I've gone through myself. Exactly right. And sometimes if you're physically uncomfortable, I mean, if my back is bad or something like that, I had a really bad accident when I was 47 and I've been yes. had problems ever since. And, um, you know, I've got plates in my back and stupid stuff like that. And, and sometimes if it's really bad, I can forget. Yeah, I couldn't do anything can. else, but I can sit and because my brain is occupied, I can forget. Yeah, and it's so, super important for people with long-term health illnesses to be able to do that because it doesn't get any better for us. It, you know, sometimes, you know, a bad day is a bad day, but you need that way of distracting and, and self-soothing and trying to live to your very best even within your restrictions what hobbies do you enjoy and ones that you wish you could explore if you had the time uh i'm i'm quite quite a keen knitter i do a lot of knitting i know that feeling yes <laughs> um uh i used to do a lot more when the children were young 
Um, uh, I didn't do it for a long time because I've got very arthritic fingers, but I started doing it again during lockdown. Yeah. It's been very good for my fingers. And uh, because my fingers are a bit more mobile than they were, I started playing the piano again, and I wish I could do more of that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm not good, you know. Believe me, I'm not good. And um, I play the hand. I got to play it all, so you're doing better than I am. Uh, I can't well, play I, a single I tune. I when I was young, and then I hadn't touched it for 50 years. I have a piano, but I my kids played ah. it, and I just carried it around yeah. with me, and I played two fingers. But I started playing again, and I, <laughs> I must be all grade three by now. <laughs> but yeah, I just Hey, as it. long as you're doing it, that's the thing. Like it, You put that practice in, you'd be surprised how far you can come. Yeah, you know that's and why I, I say I, everyone. I play the handbells, and um, I started ah. doing that a couple of years ago too. And um, I, I would like what I'd like to do more of is painting, but I don't really guess. Have time. Mm. I mm. would, I would like to be able to learn to paint out with paint by numbers, but mm. I don't think I'll ever have the confidence to do that. I think till I'm a lot older, but. Um, because my grandfather was a, a professional painter and he was such a fantastic painter. Um, and I my kind mother, of wish I had his my, skills. My was an artist, so yes. So and you almost feel like you're, you, you're letting them down if you can't do it as good as them. Yes, they're um, absolutely right. That's the trouble. When you're surrounded by people yeah. who are much better than you are, it's very, very difficult. But I, I, I would like to be able to do it a bit more, yeah. Uh, and I must admit that it's weird because a lot of the teachings that, that he used to yell at to me about, you know, oil painting. Oil painting was his thing. Um, I sort of picked up on and they kind of stuck in my brain. So even if it is paint by numbers, I, I kind of go out of my way to kind of make sure that it's it's the way he would do it. And it was, you know, it's built the way that he would do it. And and so many people say to me, you know, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you know, um, how do you do that? Um you know, because it is totally different. And I say, well, it doesn't look like a paint by numbers. And, and I go, because I, I build up the color and I make sure you can't see the lines and the numbers. And, and I'm very, very diligent about that. And I says, I think that's because I've got my grandfather's voice in my head telling me to do that. Um, and they always laugh at me and say, oh, you know, stop being blasphemous, you know, bashful and, 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 humble and whatnot but it's true because you know i learned so much from him i'm a bit more sort of splash it on and see what happens sort of thing but yeah oh you're more contemporary right okay no 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 no. i'd love to be able to play seascapes and things but you know it's definitely sort of trying to use washes and things that's what i'd like to be able to do yeah no i mean i i i would love to paint the way he did um and maybe one day i will get that skill level if because of I'm spending a lot of time with my children or whatever I might get to that point but uh, at the moment it's not it's not possible I myself have a long-term illness that makes me slow down and appreciate the day what would you what would you say makes you sort of smell the roses and, and enjoy the day literally doing that I suppose um, I've got a goldfish pond in my garden and every so often I go down and feed the fish and just enjoy the garden it's not a wonderful garden it's on a cliff but it's full of shrubs and it's in the spring oh, it's very beautiful, beautiful and cool yeah. it's lovely yeah and i've got and i do like flowers that smell so i grow yeah. lily of the valley and roses and stock so i am 
I, I'm out there. The trouble is I've had COVID and I can't smell anything at the moment. So it's a bit not oh, as no. nice as it sometimes is. But uh, yeah. Mm. So you got caught with COVID too? Pardon? So you got caught with the COVID as well then? Was it somebody uh, yeah, that brought I, it into I, your I house? Quite, or I was quite poorly with COVID and I, I still haven't got my taste back properly or anything. But uh, no, It I'm, is I'm, awful, I'm, yeah. That really is horrid. Um, but, it is. You know, it is. I'm still here. At least, at least you're here. Yes, that's that's an upside. I'll, I'll give you that. I'm terrified of catching it. I've not had it yet, and I um, I do worry about it. But I think I worry about it more because the doctors have made it into a thing that I feel like I have to worry about it. Um, and I don't think that I well, would have I worried about it if they hadn't made a big deal. Really of don't it. recommend it. I was very poorly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. I actually have to go for my booster at some point, mm. and I've forgotten to book it again. Um, but I'll get oh, there. Please, I'll please, get there. please don't, please don't, because um, I'm regarded as highly vulnerable because I have a chest disease. Same. And, um, yeah. uh, and that I had it the second day it was out. And if I hadn't had all the injections and the second booster, I would be dead. Yeah. So, well, I've, I've had five. I've had five um, because I don't uh, hold on yeah. to immunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never hold, held on to immunity like chicken pox and things like that. Normal people had on to that. I don't. Um, so I keep getting it, essentially. So when my kids have chicken pox, mummy's going to have chicken pox too. And usually it's very severe when when I get it. Um, mm-hmm. So they are, they, they're con- concerned that my body isn't going to hold on to the immunity at all so that I will always be high risk Um, and they say they don't really know how it's going to affect me until I get it and that kind of terrifies me a little bit and my husband and me we've been we can't just book it through the NHS now we have to find a chemist to do it and that um, that makes me uncomfortable a little bit because I'm like "Mm, not sure about this um, but yeah, we are trying to sort of organize it. It's just trying to get it on a day that he's not working so he can take me and then take care of me afterwards because I'm always ill with it. Um, um, it's going to be the trick, but we will do it. We will do it. I, I promise uh, we, we will get there eventually. <laughs> it's just a long road. So where's your favorite place to curl up, uh, curl up at the end of the day and just read? Do you ever... Do you have a spot in the garden or a reader's nook or, or somewhere nice to just go and curl up with that book? don't really have one. It's oh. not, 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 life isn't like that very much at the moment. Um, I tend yeah. to be slightly on duty when I'm not in here and I'm going to have yeah. to be in a minute. So just ra- finishing off the podcast, we always have the word game and yeah. I believe we're doing word association. Is that right? Yeah, the word do. game. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to say a word, and uh, you can tell me with the first word or first book that comes to your mind. Right. And let's have some fun with it. I actually gave you a theme, so maybe by the end you can let me know if you've uh, figured out the theme. So the first word is kittens. Yes. <laughs> um, last time you asked me that question, I came up with quite a different answer. But the first thing that came into my head this time was a book by, of all people, Enid Blyton called Bimbo and Topsy, which was given to me when I went to New Zealand when I was seven by my school teacher as a farewell present. Wow. I like that. That is awesome. Okay, knitting needles. Madame Defarge. Oh, I like that one. Yes, I really do. (laughs) Balls of wool. 
Well, it really has to be either Madame Defarge or having Easter with my children because when I was young and I was a single mum, uh, we didn't have a lot of money and the kids next door had huge Easter eggs and we only had little ones. So I used to do a big maze with knitting wool all around the stairs oh. and you had to roll up your ball of wool and find your Easter egg. So it became a big game. Oh, I love and that. That is so much fun. They do it with fun. their children. So. <laughs> yeah. You were ahead of the game. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. What yeah. about patterns? And what I mean by patterns is like patterns for knitting, patterns for sewing, patterns for making dresses. Yeah, well, of course, I write about a mosaicist. So the first thing I think of is mosaics. Oh, there you go. Yeah. What about basket? Kittens. Because <laughs> I had a kitten. And when 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 my little kitten was very small, um, we're talking 40 years ago, uh, it yes. used to get into the washing basket and pretend to be a lion and put its paws through the – used to turn it over. Oh, yeah, mine does that. Yeah. yeah, I've got a cat that does that. He thinks he's yeah. so – oh, I hate it because he always catches me. Yeah. Fresh bread. a tricky one isn't it no the first thing that comes into my head and it's not a book at all it's just france i love that answer we'll go with that answer because i think that one's the best answer so (laughs) newborns cry um what do you think of when you hear a newborn crying uh well of course when you have had a newborn it would have to be my own little Son and daughter, I guess. Oh, I love that. Um, I think that's so sweet. I tell you what else, something has just come into my mind. I was once at a nativity service and they had a real baby. That's beautiful. And that was just so lovely. You don't get that anymore. Yeah. And the, 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 the mother just had the real baby. And it was just, and the baby just went, ah, and it was just. Oh, it was destiny. Yeah, I love that. Oh, you made me all gushy now. Well, that's it for the podcast this week, guys. And I am so honored to have had you on, really and truly. And I cannot wait to send you the Shetland Royals. Um, And you'll have to come back on uh, when you get another book ready for release. And we'll have another chat and maybe a bit deeper chat about what you've been writing about. But truly, guys, this this has been an absolute honor for me. And I think, you know, we fly the the banner high for historical and British, you know, writing. And I hope we continue to do that for many years to come. And again, thank you so much for joining us. And next week, we're going to have an exceedingly interesting guest. You're just going to have to wait and see who it is. So I'll see you all again next week.